0: I'm not sure if you've ever watched TV and you've seen the thing that I've seen on TV uh, where you're watching TV and there's a person who, who's going through and they have a decision to make. And, and there's this little angel that appears on one side of, their, uh, of the person, right? And the angel's telling them, oh, you need to do the right thing. You need to do what God would want you to do. And then on the other side, there's like a demon that shows up. And the demon's like, man, forget that. Let's just go have fun. Let's go and and, and do whatever we want to do. You guys ever seen that happen in TV shows or cartoons or whatever the case? No, I'm not sure about you. I'm not sure about you. But I have never had the angel and the demon on my shoulders. But I've had that battle in my heart. Has anybody else ever had that battle? where it's like, like you're wrestling and you're like, man, there's this like a war within me. I feel these two sides raging on. Like, I know this is what I should do. I know this is what God would want me to do, but man, I don't want to do that. I want to do something else. I want to do what I want to do. And so I don't know about you, but I know for me, I have this war that goes on inside my heart, this battle between, between godliness and, and worldliness. And, and, uh, you know, this happens, this happens in very simple areas. This happens for me in my prayer life. And I know that you're like, well, you're a pastor. You probably have a wonderful prayer life. And I just want to be honest. There are some nights when I know I should pray. I know I should drop on my knees and I should pray over all the things that I need to be praying about. But Netflix, man. Netflix just loaded season two of The Flash. And there's 23 episodes I got to get caught up on. And so I have this battle where I know I should do this, but, but man, there's this entertainment on Netflix and I really want to watch this show. And this, this also, this battle plays out in, in harder areas of life. In fact, many of you know I, I had the opportunity to, to serve at Madison House for, for seven and a half years. And I remember you know, we had this season where it was like God was just blessing the ministry and there was tremendous growth. Um, we had kids that were coming to know Christ. I think we saw hundreds of kids come to know Jesus. And my, my boss says, hey, Kevin, I want you to come with me. We're going to give a, a, a presentation to this board, and we're going to try and get some money from them. And so it was a grant presentation. He says, I want you to come with me. And so we're there, and my, my, my boss, is, he's doing all the talking, and he's saying, here's here, here, here. And, uh, and at the end of his presentation, all the people that are there are like, man, that is awesome. That ministry, you guys are rocking. And you, you boss, like you're you're so amazing. You're so committed to these kids. You love these kids so well, and that's what's resulting and all the changed lives. And I'm sitting here thinking, yeah, right. Like, what about me? Like, I'm the one doing the work. Like my boss, he comes a couple times a year, but I'm there every day working with these kids. And they're giving them, they're giving him all this recognition. I'm like, no, I deserve it. Like, I want that recognition. I want to be recognized for what I've done. And so I've got this war within me, this battle where I know I just should be thankful that these people are excited about the ministry. But I, in my heart, am battling because I wanted that recognition for myself. I didn't want my boss to get it. I thought, man, I deserve... I know some of you are thinking I need to be in counseling. I've been there, done that. I'm through it. I'm good. I promise. I just want to be honest with you about how there's this, this battle inside of our hearts where, where we feel like, we feel like, man, I know what I should do. I know the way I should think. I know what I'm supposed to do. But man, I've just got this flesh inside of me that, that, that wants to do something completely different. And so it becomes this war, this war between godliness and, and, and worldliness. And I want to make sure as we start this conversation about godliness and worldliness that we're uh, in agreement on terms. So when I'm talking about godliness, what I mean by godliness is that Jesus is in the center of your life. Like Jesus is your primary motivation. He's number one in everything in your life. And you can look at all the different areas of your life and they're all affected by that number one. So Jesus, he's got an impact on your relationships. He's got an impact on how you parent. He's got an impact on how you go to work and what you do at work. He's got an impact on what type of TV shows you watch on Netflix. He's got an impact. If Jesus is number one, if you're pursuing godliness, then that number one thing becomes your main priority and affects everything around you, okay? Worldliness is different. And I want to be clear, worldliness does not mean that you ignore God worldliness does not mean that you don't that you completely reject God because the reality is it the reality of it is that there are Christians who are going to struggle with worldliness okay so i want to make sure we understand the way that i'm going to define worldliness is worldliness is when we marginalize God okay so we have our life we marginalize God so we no longer want God to be the center. We no, no longer want God to be number one. So we push God to the side and we allow some other uh, pursuit to become number one. And so whatever that worldly pursuit is, maybe, maybe for you that worldly pursuit is, is popularity or influence or relationships or career or love or sex or, or money or, or an addiction to, to something that's negative. Children... Man, even, you know what else can become the center of somebody's life? Like the Seattle Seahawks. Like, literally, there are some that we just worship the Seahawks and they're number one and everything else is number two or three or four. And so, even when I was looking at my case, when I'm struggling with praying, when I'm struggling deciding should I pray and I know I should do this or should I watch Netflix, man, I'm struggling because entertainment is becoming the center of my life. I want to be entertained. And so I'm pushing God aside so I can pursue entertainment. When I was dealing with my my boss, man, I'm pushing God aside because I want recognition. I want worldly recognition. And this is what worldliness looks like. Where it's not like we've forgotten God. It's just, God, you're going to be over here and I'm going to focus on this right now because this is what I want. Another way for us to understand worldliness is who is it that you are seeking their acceptance? Who is it in your life that you feel like if I had their acceptance, like, man, then I'd be all right. Like, are you looking for the acceptance of your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors? The reality is we do so much to get the approval of people around us. The reality is we don't really like people that much. Like the people that we're trying to, to impress, like how much do we actually like them? So this is, this is the battle. And I, and I want you to know, if, if you've been in my shoes where you feel like you're in that, 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 that war constantly between godliness and worldliness, listen, I want you to know you're not alone. Because I'm in that battle with you. And, and, and in fact, James is going to deal with this battle, this, this, this war within us between uh, godliness and worldliness. And so this is a little bit of a continuation. Last week, uh, Jason ta- talked about the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. And this conversation of godliness and worldliness is going to be a a continuation of that same idea. So before we jump in, in James chapter 4, I'm going to ask you just to join me in a word of prayer. God, I just want to thank you for for who you are today. I Thank you for just this opportunity uh, to be gathered with your people. Uh, God, it's great to be with these people. God, I pray that they would understand. um, God, they found a place that they belong. Right here. That God, we would be a place... Of belonging, God, we know that the church is not just a building. The church um, is the people. And so, God, thankful for the opportunity to be gathered with your people today. God, I pray that you help us just to lean in. Uh, God, you brought us all here for a reason. So, God, I pray that you help us to hear your word. That we'd be able to say, man, it's not about the distractions. It's not about what the pastor wants to say. But, God, it's, this is your word being taught right now. So, God, I pray that you would speak to us, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would encourage us, that you would convict us, and that, God, you would grow us uh, deeper in love with you, Jesus. We love you and praise you. and you know, Ask for your presence with us now. And all God's people said, "Amen." So James is going to start out with a question, and here's here's James's question. He says, "What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you?" Now I know some of you are thinking, "I know exactly why I get in a fight. It's because I've got a crazy sister. I know exactly why I get in a fight because I've got a, a loony, a lunatic for a neighbor." Like, these are the reasons I get in a fight. It's because somebody else. But here's what James says. Is it not this, that your passions are in, at war within you? So you this battle of worldliness where we know, we know what we should do. We know what God would want us to do. We, 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 God speaks to us and we kind of have this idea, this is how I'm supposed to live. What happens is our, our passions begin to, to rage. And we desire, we begin to start pursuing those worldly passions that are inside of us. And what James is saying is most of our quarrels, most of our arguments are going to come from this, this, these, these, this worldliness that comes from inside of us, the passions within us. This is how, this is how James says, this is how it works out. Verse 2, he says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Not I, I would imagine, like, sometimes we get into fights. Sometimes we get into quarrels, like, like you know. But I don't think, like, murder. I don't think murder is like a regular thing that we struggle with, like physically murdering other people. But I want you to think about this in a different way. I want you to think not just physical. But what about in your mind? What about that person who, who offends you? What about that person who has something and they're, they're gloating and they're bragging about it? Like, in our minds, like, don't we do that? Don't we tear them down, we belittle them? Man, if we could, if we could cut them off completely from our life, like isn't that kind of like our murdering them in our minds and, and, and trying to, to have this, this argument inside of our mind? And this is kind of this idea that, that Paul is talking about, or excuse me, that James is talking about, about how, how this is how it plays out. We're, we're in our minds, maybe in reality of life, but in our minds we have these struggles, we have these thoughts, we have these feelings about other people, and, and here's here's how it plays plays out. Where, maybe somebody around us, maybe somebody beca- gets blessed. Maybe maybe they get the job. They make the money. Maybe maybe they get the girl. Maybe they get the recognition that you feel like you deserve. And you have the desire for those same things. You say, "Well, I want that. Like, I want that job. I want that house. I want I want that girl. I want all of these things." And so what happens is we become jealous, and we may not publicly confront this person we may not publicly tear them down but in our heart or maybe to our closest friend or maybe through a um uh, through a cryptic post on facebook man isn't this what we do we begin to belittle and we we think of all the reasons why we're better than that person like we're more deserving for what they've been given than they are because we're better than they are and so we start thinking man that guy man that guy that guy got the job and he, he doesn't deserve the job. Like, he doesn't love Jesus. Like, I serve in church. He doesn't serve in church. He doesn't deserve the job. I, I'm better than him. I deserve the job. And this is how we, we begin rustling in our minds. And this is where those fights and quarrels, they start in the same way. Because we look at what somebody else has and we think, man, I want that. I deserve that. I should have that. Another way to look at this is sometimes we just look at the, what somebody else has. We look at what somebody else has and say, say, man, I wish I had that. I wish I had that. Like, you might look at somebody's marriage and say, man, I wish I had a marriage like that. Like, look look at how this man treats his wife. Like, isn't that wonderful? And then you look at your husband and you're like, dude, he can't get anything right. Like, man, this sucks. I wish I had that marriage. My my life sucks. My marriage sucks. And you begin to, to think instead of trying to figure out your marriage, you begin to Live vicariously through some other marriage. Okay? Or you look at this and you're like, man, you look at somebody else, someone else's church. You're like, man, look at that church. Man, I wish our church was like that. Man, that pastor. I wish, I wish our pastor was more like that pastor. Man, my, 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 my church sucks. And these are the things that we wrestle with in our heart. This is the, the jealousy, that bitter, that comes because we look at what other people have, we look at what they're experiencing, we say, man, I want that. I deserve that. I want that. And so it begins to play out through belittling, through quarreling, through fighting that may not come out verbally. But it's something that we're going to wrestle with in our heart. It's something that we might vent to our, our fra- someone that we're really close to. And this is a reality of how life plays. And when it's left to, when we're left in bitterness, when we allow that bitterness to reside in our heart, man, it leads to all these quarrels. It leads to all these fights. A minimum in our heart, if not in the reality of life. And so James says this regarding the conflict that we're experiencing and, and, and the, the worldliness in our heart. He says in verse 2, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. Now this is a verse that honestly has been has been abused in the past. Because people look at the ver- this verse and say, well, God just said you don't have something because you don't ask. So Flip that around. If you want something, all you have to do is ask. Like, if you want a car, just ask. God will will give it to you. You want a house? Just ask, and God will give it to you. You want the job? Just ask, and God will give it to you. And so this is a way that this verse has been abused. But we got to understand the context that James is writing this verse in. James is writing this verse talking about this battle between godliness and worldliness. And he's talking about the conflict that this battle creates in our life. And so the context of this verse is is conflict, not Cadillacs, okay? And so what James is saying is you don't have peace in those conflicts. You don't have peace in your heart because you don't ask God to come into the middle of that that conflict, okay? This is a context for the verse that we're, we're looking at. James is saying you don't have peace because you haven't invited God into the middle of it. And this is where you've got to ask and say, God, would you come into my, my situation? Would you come into this battle within my heart? Would you come into this conflict, God? Would you give me peace? Would you be the judge? And would you settle this thing once and for all? And some of you would say, well, man, I've, I've asked God. I've, I've asked God for help. And God didn't give me help. Okay? And here, here's what James would say in, in verse 3. He says, you ask And do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. See, again, when we're talking about worldliness, worldliness doesn't mean you're an atheist. Worldliness doesn't mean that you uh, don't love God and have a desire to follow God. It just means that you've pushed God to the side. You've marginalized Him and allow something else to become the center of your life. And so when you're, the way that James is saying this is when you're asking God for your help, you're asking God to come to be on your side. In the conflict, you're saying, hey, Jesus, hey, God, come and vindicate me. Come and prove that I'm right. Come and prove that I'm worthy. Come prove that I deserve what I want. God, come and prove that I'm wrong. So you're asking God into the situation, but you're not asking God to be the judge of the whole thing. You want God to affirm you. To give you what it is that your heart really wants. You're not praying You're not pl- praying according to God's pleasure. You're praying according to your own pleasure. You're saying, God, this is what I really want. And God, I'm going to use you and ask you to give me what I want. Instead of me saying, God, what is it that you want in my life? And so in the middle of this context, the middle of the conflict that we experience between godliness and worldliness and, and conflict with other people, man, our prayer... Our prayer should not be the, God, would you vindicate me before these people? Our prayer should be, God, God, would you help me to be surrendered before you? Just to submit to you. God, I'm not going to pray and ask you to ask to bend God to meet my will. Say, God, these are all the things I want. God, would you come and do these things? That's not the prayer we should be praying. We should be praying and say, God, would you help me to be bent towards your will? That I'd be willing to follow what you have. See, I think that we could say this. I think we could say unanswered prayer would be a sign of of worldliness in our life. Because when we're praying and God's not answering, what James is saying is because we're praying according to our own passions. We're not praying according to God's will. We're praying according to our will. These are the things that we want. God, would you give me this? God, this is what I want. God, would you give it to me? Instead of saying, God, what is it you want? Like, I want to be submitted to you, God, for what you have in my life. Prayer shows whether or not we believe that God is just a means to an end and that's to fulfill our desires, to to give us some version of the American dream. Or prayer shows if, if God is the end in and of itself, like if that's what we want ultimately, it's just God. So this is a context that we're in. We have this, this battle going on where, where we have these, these worldly passions that we want to pursue and these worldly things. And sometimes we even ask God for these things, but it's not what God wants. We're asking from our own passions. And this is, this is what, when we're pursuing, the, pursuing worldliness, like this is the way that God feels about you. This is what James says. He says, you adulterous people, in the middle of this, this, this battle that we have between godliness and worldliness, James calls out, you adulterous people. Now what's interesting about this passage, or about this book of James, is nine times so far in this book, James has written and said, my brothers, my brothers, this is a sign of affection. He loves these people, okay? But now, no longer does he call them my brothers. Now he has some very strong words. He's saying, you adulterous people. This is strong judgment. James is issuing a judgment saying worldliness is equivalent to, to, uh, to adultery against God. Like when we push God aside, we begin to pursue all these other things. This is like committing adultery against God. And this is, what, this, is what, this is what James says. He says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Like, that's just some very strong words that James is talking to us about. Like, you have this desire. Who are you going to pursue? Are you going to pursue worldliness? or Are you going to pursue godliness? See, and when James is talking friendship, we need to understand a, a completely different context of friendship. Because friendship looked different when James wrote this book than it does in our day. Like, in our day, like, we have Facebook friends, right? Like, I've got 864 facebook friends on facebook okay you know how many of those people i really know i don't know i probably don't really know 99 percent of those people like i know them but i don't really know them right they're just acquaintances i don't know what's the intimate details of their life and you know just a side note on facebook this is just fascinating have you noticed on facebook like what we do in our day today like 15 years ago like you'd be convicted of stalking like, you can go on Facebook and you can find out what I had for dinner last night. You can find out what, kid, what school my kids go to. You can find out where I went on vacation last year. Like, 15 years ago, I, you were stalking me. But in Facebook, this is the Facebook world that we live in. Listen, we need to be understand that Facebook friends and this society we have, I mean, there's nothing more, they're nothing more than acquaintances. Because when James is writing this idea of friendship, Friends for few and far between. You didn't have technology. You didn't have cars. You had a small group of people that you were around, and many of those you probably don't like. And so when, when James is writing this idea about friendship, I want us to think more, not in terms of friendship, but think about best friends. Like, you don't have a lot of best friends. You have a very small, few number of best friends. Maybe just one. There's one person that you're intimate with on that, that close relationship with. This is the kind of friendship that, that James is talking about. And, uh, and, and, and what he's going to say, what he's going to say is, is at the center of your heart, like you've got number, that number one spot. Who is going to be that best friend? Is it going to be worldliness? Is it going to be whatever that worldly uh, passion we have? Or is it going to be God? There's only one seat on, on, on that. On the, there's only one chair. Only one person can fill that seat. Who is going to take that seat? Is it going to be your worldly passions? Or is it going to be God? See, it's impossible for us to have a heart that is set on this world and to please God at the same time. It is impossible for us to do that. World, if worldly, become, worldly success, if worldly passions becomes our number one priority in life, listen, James says we are an enemy of God. And I think this is something that we've got, to just, we've got to just hear today. This is a hard word, and it's going to take a hard look in our heart. And I think that's what we ought to do, is look in our heart, man, God, what is my, pri- what is my number one thing in life? Like, what is my primary motivation? Like, yes, I love Jesus, but is he really my number one thing? Like, yes, I want God in my life, but am I just using God to fulfill these worldly desires or is God really the number one thing, the primary motivation? Is he the top priority in my life? Am I allowing Jesus to have influence over all the other areas of my life? Listen, if you're sitting here and saying, man, I feel that struggle. Like, yeah, I know God should be there, but I know that how many times I put something else on that seat. Listen, if, if that's you, you're not the only one who has that struggle. The Apostle Paul, who's probably the greatest missionary who ever lived, he endured the same struggle. This is what he said. He said, the things I don't want to do are the things I do. The things I do want to do are the things I don't do. So he understands the struggle. He understands it. And in that, in that situation where we wrestle with this godliness and this worldliness, listen, here's what James says about how God feels about you. This is in verse 5. Or do you suppose it is, of, it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? See, in the middle of, this, uh, of us wrestling with worldliness and godliness, Listen, James just said, God is jealous for you and I. And that is a remarkable thing. Now, I know you hear jealous and you begin to think, uh, well, well, jealous, that's not a good thing. Like, we're not supposed to be jealous. But listen, God's jealousy is different than ours. God is not jealous about you. He's not looking at something you have and he's jealous and say, I want some of that. You're so great, I want you. No, God is not jealous about you. God is jealous for you. And there's a huge difference. John Piper, who's a pastor and theologian, he tells a little story that helps us understand God's jealousy. And here's what he says. He says, God's jealousy is not the reflex of weakness or fear. Instead, God is jealous like a powerful and merciful king who takes a peasant girl from a life of shame, forgives her, marries her, and gives her not the chores of a slave, but the privileges of a wife and of a queen, And here's what he says. He says, his jealousy does not rise from fear or weakness, but from a holy indignation at having his honor and power and mercy scorned by the faithlessness of a fickle spouse. See, in the gospel, the gospel of Jesus, how he saved us. He has rescued us. He has ransomed us. He has forgiven us. He has changed us from being a slave to being a son of God. And we're given a place of honor by the king of kings. He says, you're one of mine now. You're a chosen one. And when we go and we pursue worldliness, what we're doing is we're betraying God and running back to the same shame that he saved us from. Like this is what we do when we pursue worldliness. And God, then in that moment, he's jealous for us. That we would, would, would miss out on the, the, the fullest joy that he's offered to us. That we would miss out on, on all that God has in store for us because we're running back to the same things he saved us from. This is how God is jealous for us. He has so much more that we would experience if we would just remain faithful to him. And not only is he jealous for you, but he says in verse 6, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I love that. He gives more grace. See, when we look at the face of our worldliness, the face of our failures, when we look and say all the areas that we have, have dropped the ball, all the areas that we pursue worldliness instead of godliness, he gives more grace. There is no sin with more power than the cross of Jesus Christ. Listen, I don't know, I don't know where you're at in life. But I know oftentimes we come into church and we feel like, man, I'm just, uh, you just don't know what I've done. Like, I, I, I've sinned so badly. I've broken so many relationships. I've screwed up my life so poorly. There's no way that God could accept me. And listen, if these are the thoughts going through your mind, listen. God is jealous for you. And what James just said is he gives more grace. In the face of that adultery, he gives more grace. In the face of that failure, he gives more grace. In the face of that addiction, he gives more grace. In the face of whatever it is, he gives more grace. Paul in Romans chapter 5, he says, "Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And how great it is for us to know that even all the times that we, we, we left God, we've betrayed him, we've committed adultery against God, that he is still jealous for us. And he is still there to give more grace, to love us more, to redeem us back to him. So we can come back and say, man, God, you are so good to me and I'm going to be fully committed to pursuing godliness in my life now. Because God, every time I've fallen down, you've been there to pick me up. This is good news. This is good news that God continues to give more grace. And as we're sitting here and we're saying, okay, we've got this battle going on. We've got, we've got godliness and the things we know we should do and, and the good stuff. and we've got this worldliness that, that, that battles in uh, from our flesh and we, we want to pursue things that we know we shouldn't do. And it's like, well, you know, oh, that, that's great. I know that when I pursue worldliness that God gives more grace, but, but how do I do this? How do I win? How do I pursue godliness? And this is what James is going to do in the next couple of verses. He's going to give us some instructions on how to to win the war within our heart. And the first thing he's going to say, the first thing James is going to teach us is that we're to submit to God. This is what James says in verse 7. He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Now, we don't like this word submit. Because some of us have this contrived view that submit means uh, to blindly follow somebody. Listen, that's not what submission means. There's something even better than that. What submission means is it means that we trust. It means that we trust that God is who he says he is. It means that we trust that God is good. It means that we trust that God is for us and not against us. It means that we trust that God is working things out for our good and for his glory. It means that we recognize, man, you're God, I'm not. Like you're the one who created the heavens and the earth, I'm not. And because of that, God, I can trust you. I can trust you that you are going to work things out for my good and for your glory. Let me just ask you this question. Like when you're considering the worldliness in your life, like has that worldliness ever proven itself unfaithful to you? Like all the times that you've pursued the passions of this world, whatever it is, like has that ever proven unfaithful to you? Man, I can just think about my life time and time and time again. How many times that I've pursued worldliness and I've only found, man, it's never enough. Like I think if I just have a little bit more, man, I'll be there, I'll be satisfied to find it's not enough. And then to find that worldliness, it leaves me left broken. And I've got all these pieces around me and I'm left alone to pick it up all on my own. Listen, this is what happens. Worldliness has been so unfaithful to us. But what about God? Has God proven his faithfulness to you? I know some of you are saying, well, I think so. But also, I've had suffering. Like, 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 like maybe has God has not proven himself faithful in suffering. And listen, we don't have a ton of time to dive into this issue of suffering today. But listen, we've, we've covered this. We covered this a couple weeks ago that God in his goodness, he allows hardships in our life. Because trials, trials are a pathway to maturity. Trials teach us to depend fully on God. And and, and in that moment when we experience hardships and trials, listen, worldliness leaves you all alone. God never leaves us nor forsakes us. He's with us in the muck and the mire of hardships and life. And, and he, makes, he makes us stronger through that. And we come out on the end and we say, man, look at where I've come. And we can look and see what God has done from carrying us through those hardships. Like that's what God does to produce maturity and strength within us. And so so, so the first way that we, uh, that we win this battle is we pursue or, or as we submit to God. And I think James is going to dive into three different ways. Uh, this is what submission looks like. Three different ways that submission looks like. First, He's going to say, submission looks like resisting the devil. James says in verse 7, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. See, in John chapter 14, Jesus calls Satan uh, the ruler or the prince of this world. And listen, he he wants nothing more than for us to push God aside and pursue godliness. In fact, I would say Satan, what Satan probably wants most of all, is that we have a little bit of God. And a lot of worldliness. Not enough God to change our life, but just little enough to, to make us feel like we're okay. And then we pursue everything else, and we use God to pursue those other things. Listen, something you need to know, okay? Satan is a coward. Satan is a coward. When he is resisted, when you and I stand firm on the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross, Satan is a coward and he will flee from you because he knows he has been defeated. Satan doesn't have control and power of you. He's been defeated by, Satan, by Jesus on the cross. And when we stand and we resist Satan, he flees like a cockroach when you flip the light on. He runs and hightails it out of there. Satan is a coward. And listen, because Satan knows that he's defeated, he's smart. And he tries these tricks against us. He tries these tricks where he whispers in our ear. He whispers and says, you can't resist me. You can't resist me. I've gotten you before. I'll get you again. You can't resist me. Before we come to the point of resistance, he's put that question in our mind. We think, I can't do it. I can't resist him. I've fallen before. And instead of standing on the power of Jesus Christ, we believe Satan's lies and allow him to have continued control over us. Listen, you need to hear this. James is talking like it's wartime. And there are some in here today where you need to step up and be ready to fight Satan. You need to be a step up and ready to fight and battle Stop letting Satan walk all over you. Stop letting him have all the victories in your life. It's time that you stand up and you resist Satan's work in your life and say, No, I'm standing on what Jesus has done for me. And I'm going to believe that Jesus will give me victory through this. And it's time that you stand up and grab a sword. You grab the Word of God and say, Satan, you don't have control over me. Because we've been losing too many of these battles, listening to Satan's lies and allowing him to walk all over us. Second thing that submission looks like. Submission becomes a, a, uh, when we pursue God. That's what submission looks like. We pursue God. Here's, here's what he says in verse 8. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We've got to pursue God. You now, some of you are saying, well, I, I've tried, like, how do I, how do I really pursue God? What does it look like in my life? Listen, very simple, a couple of ways for you to pursue God. You pursue God through the Word of God, through the Bible. This book right here. This book is not just a bunch of stories. It's not a bunch of fables. It's not facts for you to memorize. It's not just figures for you to know. Listen, through this book, we get a gaze upon the beauty of, of Jesus Christ. The beauty of who God is. We get to really know who God is. And my desire is that when we open up God's word, when we open up God's word, that God will just give us these little nuggets of truth. That we can read things like we just read in James 4, that, that God gives more Grace. That we can read things like like God is for you and not against you. That you could read and know that God's love for you is never-ending. Because when you hear this from God's word, when you hide God's word in your heart, when you pursue the Bible, listen, it fuels your belief. It fuels your faith. It gives you strength to stand upon the promises of God. To stand upon what God has done for you and what God has said about you. And that transforms your heart. It transforms your life. You've got to have the Word of God in your life. Another way for you to pursue God is you've got to live in community with other believers. This is a huge thing. This is a huge thing. For you to pursue God, you've got to have other believers around you to encourage you, to build you up, to hold you accountable, to, to just pray together and be together and live together. Because listen, if you're if you're Christian faith... If all your Christian faith is, is coming here on Sunday's mornings and listening to me preach a message and having, and singing with the worship team, listen, that's fine until life happens. And then life happens, and that is totally insufficient to get you through the hardships of life. Because when life happens, you've got to have the people around you to build you up, to hold you accountable, to encourage you, to do all those things. Listen, there's two ways, very simply, for you to connect here at Restoration Church and get plugged into the body of Christ. We would invite you to join a life group. We have five different life groups that meet various nights throughout the week. And just an opportunity to live life with other people and say, hey, let's come together. Let's have a meal together. Let's, let's read the Bible together. Let's talk about where we're at. Let's pray for one another. A simple way just to be in community and have people around you. Another way for you to build community is to find a place to serve. See, here at Restoration Church, uh, we want us to understand that when we come to serve, the purpose is not just to get a task done. Listen, we all have this temptation where it's all about the task, and we just come to do whatever we're called to do. No, when we come to serve, we have an opportunity for intentional relationships with the people around us. Like, that's got to be a part of what we're doing when we're serving. It's not just doing a task. It's got to be, how can we connect with the people around us? And so I want to invite you, hey, if you're looking for community, plug in. Find a group, find a place to serve, and you'll begin to find those relationships that you need. Third third thing that submission looks like. Submission uh, means we get serious with sin. We get serious about sin. This is what James says in verse 8. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you, you double-minded people. This idea about being double-minded, this is where we're trying to live with this, this godliness and this worldliness and trying to balance the two. You can't do that. You can't have both godliness and worldliness in your life. They're enemies towards each other. You can't have both of them. You can't be a double-minded person. And James says, be wretched and mourn and weep. He's talking over our sin we're supposed to mourn and, and weep over our sin. See I I'm, I'm concerned that, that at least some of us myself probably included is we've become we've gotten so comfortable with sin. We've gotten so comfortable with sin in our lives and sin around our lives that we excuse it and we say well everybody does this. It's okay. And we excuse and we come we get so comfortable with the sin in our lives. Listen the old puritans the old puritan preachers man they would pray for tears. They would pray and say, God, would you, would you break me over my sin? Would you make me feel the weight of my sin so that I would set that aside and I could pursue godliness? Like, shouldn't that be our heart? And here's, here's what he says. This is maybe, for me, the most challenging part of, challenging verse in this entire section. Okay, he says in verse 9, he says, Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Let your laughter return to mourning. See, we live in an entertainment society. Like we love to be entertained. Everything we do is about entertainment. And so the shows you watch on TV, the music you listen to, in fact, we come to church and expect to be entertained. And listen, this is is society we live in. We want to be entertained. We want to laugh. Listen, what is it that makes you laugh? What is it that makes you laugh? Now, I've got a six-year-old. You know how you make a six-year-old laugh? You fart. It works every time. It works every time. You can't go wrong with it. Like, I'm a stand-up comedian with him. But do we understand how gross it is that we're laughing at that? Listen, consider the jokes that you laugh at. Consider the jokes that you like on Facebook. Consider the TV shows that you are addicted to. The music and the lyrics that you'll rock out to in the car. Consider what you are entertained by. And I think this is where James says, turn your laughing into mourning. Feel the weight over the things that we just trivially are entertained by. That one hits deep. That one hurts a little bit. I'm challenged by this. And this is my prayer. God, would you help me to be serious about sin? God, would you help me to to be broken over the sin? So he says, if we're going to defeat and we're going to win this war and defeat worldliness in our life, we have to submit to God. The second thing we have to do is to humble ourselves. This is what James says in verse 10. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. See, one of the keys, to, one of the keys to, to godliness is humility. And this is the opposite of worldliness. Worldliness operates from a, from a mentality of pride. And humility recognizes, man, God doesn't owe us anything. Like, I'm not all that great. Like, I'm a, you and I, we're little blips in the great cosmic story that God is writing throughout the universe. You and I are nothing. God doesn't owe us a darn thing. And when we can have that kind of humility and understand God doesn't owe us anything, we understand we're not entitled, then we realize everything we have around us is a blessing. That God has been good providing us the things that we have. You've got a family? That's a blessing. You've got a house? That's a blessing. You've got a church? That's a blessing. All those things, we're not entitled to them. They're blessings from God. And then we can begin to live in gratitude and understand his goodness and continually being good to us. And he says, not only humble yourselves before the Lord, but he says, he will exalt you. The question you have to ask is, who do I really want to exalt me? Like, who do I really want to applaud me? Who is it you want to applaud you? Like, I've got 864 Facebook acquaintances. Like, is that the exaltation I want? That 864 of my friends would like my creative post, would like me on Facebook to make me feel really good. Is that the approval that I'm seeking in life? Whose approval are you seeking? Because listen, I've got some family and I've got some friends in here today. Listen, nothing against you. I don't really want your approval. I want God's approval. I want God to exalt me. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Like, isn't he the one that we want exaltation from? Isn't he the one that we want approval from? Last thing that James is saying. To to win this war within us. To to pursue godliness over worldliness. James is going to say something that he's already talked about. He's going to say that choosing godliness means that we redeem our words. We redeem our words. Here's what he says in 11 and 12. He says, "'Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor?' See, when we're living in judgment on other people, and this is what we do when we're when we're envious of somebody else, when we when we covet what they have, we begin to, to, to speak down on them, at least mentally. We begin to think, oh, we judge them, and we speak down on them. And listen, when we do that, when we feel that, that, that judgment in our heart, listen, remember what we said two weeks ago? That your words reveal something about your heart. They reveal what's going on inside your heart. And those words reveal when you're judging others, that you have a worldly heart. Because pride, pride sets itself up as a judge. Pride sets itself up as a judge and separates us from other people. It separates us from the law. Like we're better than them, so I have the right to judge you. Listen, James says, there's only one who deserves the, 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 the spot on the throne. There's only one who deserves to be a judge. He's the only perfect one. He is our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can stand up and, and, and judge. He's saying, who are we? Like when we understand the, the, our humility, understand our brokenness, like who are we to judge another person? Godliness, it doesn't judge other people. It doesn't tear other people's down so we can build ourselves up. Because when we are living in godliness, remember, Jesus is our primary, th- primary goal. Jesus is our primary object of affection. So if that's, if that's it, then nothing else can be a threat to us. Other people aren't a threat because we are pursuing the one thing that matters most. So we don't have to tear someone else down to build us up. Because we have the greatest thing ever, Jesus. Jesus. And when, when, when we pursue godliness, this is where we have our words redeemed. This is where we have uh, the ability to speak life and to encourage other people. And as we just think, okay, well, what is our takeaway? Like, like, what do we walk away from? Listen, this is what I want you to think about this week in your life. I want you to think about what does it look like for you to pursue godliness instead of worldliness? What does it look like for you to submit yourself to God? What does it look like for you to humble yourself? And what does it look like for you to redeem your words? Now, all three of those can be tough. But I think specifically when we're looking at submission to God, when we're looking at humbling ourselves, that's a little bit harder to have a tangible response from. But you know one thing we all can do? We all can redeem our words. So in your worship folder, hopefully you got one of those worship folders when you came in today. I did a little thing for you this week. I gave you a note card. Okay? And, and, and if you didn't get a note card, there's note cards on the resource table. If you got a girly note card and you don't want to have that one, you can trade it with somebody around you. But I want to encourage you this week to, to, to pursue godliness, to redeem your words. And when you feel that temptation in your mind to judge somebody else, when you feel that temptation in your mind to speak down on someone else, to belittle them, I want you to remember, man, godliness means I redeem my words. So you have a note card. For you this week, when you feel that temptation to come to to judge someone else, I want you to stop and say, no, I'm going to take that note card out. Now I'm going to write an encouraging note to somebody. I don't care who it is. You send it to whoever you want to encourage. I want you to take that note. And I want you to redeem those words at that moment. I want you to redeem your words so you can speak life to somebody. To build them up instead of tearing them down. Simple enough? Let me pray for you. God, just thank you for your grace on us today. Thank you for this opportunity just to be gathered with your people. And God, I'm thankful for your word. God, I'm thankful that you use your word, the Bible, to speak to us to convict us, to help us to know you more. And God, there's some hard things in this passage today. But God, I thank you that you're going to deal with the hard things with us. And God, I just pray for all of us that as we consider this this war that's waging in our hearts, that God, we would be honest with where we are. That we'd be honest with where we are and say, man, I see this worldliness waging on and on and on. These 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 passions, this, these worldly passions. God, I pray that we would just come before you today and just, just submit those to you and say, God, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry that I pursued worldliness. God, I just pray that you would help us to pursue godliness. Help us to understand what, what you mean when you say to submit to you, to humble ourselves to you, that we would redeem our words. God, I just think like, Like, what kind of place could we be if we all together chose to defeat the worldliness in our life, pursue godliness? Like people would come and find not judgment, but grace. They find the God who gives more grace to all people. God, I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts. And as we have this opportunity right now to sing a couple songs of worship and response, God, I pray that you would continue to speak to us, that we would cry out before you, that you'd meet with us here and now and submit the things that you've done in our heart. Jesus, I love you and praise you. And we ask this in your name, amen.